if you smell what Baron Vaughn is cooking, it's me, and welcome to Deep Shit. Hey guys, did you forget what I sounded like since I haven't posted a podcast for two weeks? And the last couple times I have posted them, they were late. And this one I'm posting late on a Monday instead of the Sunday night. So that way it's available for you on Monday morning for your your uh, commute to work or your work or your workout. You know, anything that involves work. Uh, commute to work, actual work, or workout, or work in it. You know, when you're twerking, that's also a good place to listen to this podcast. Point is, is that I, I apologize for uh, not posting a podcast, and uh, now I am doing it. I just want to get this motherfucker up and out there. But I feel like I'm doing Remember when people blogged? Remember when blogging was a thing? I mean, I guess people still do, but I mean, like, everyone was blogging. Like, it was like people were talking about their blogs. You know, kind of like how people talk about their Twitters or their podcasts now. Um, I always felt like blogging at some point always turns into everyone apologizing for the fact that they haven't blogged for a little bit. That seemed to be the most popular blog that you could write. It always started with, sorry, I haven't blogged for a while, guys. And, of course, the six people that read that blog were given a little bit of relief. They were like, oh, well, at least she knows she's wrong to not post the thing I love reading. Um, so I'm trying not to, what I'm trying to say is, sorry for not podcasting for a while, guys. Here I am. I'm back, and I'm blacker than ever. That's, that's not a thing. Um, I was very busy because I went to two comedy festivals. I went to Portland to do the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, and then I went to Austin to do the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. And I'm back in Los Angeles this week before I go to Calgary later this week. So if you're in Calgary and uh, you want to come see me do stand-up at The Laugh Shop, I'm going to be there this week, May 9th through the 11th. That's a Thursday, a Friday, and a Saturday. And I'll be walking around Calgary since I cannot rent a car. Um, and hopefully it'll be nice this time. I've done this, this club once before. It was February, so it was winter. It was snowy as fuck. But now it's May, and I hear that Calgary is uh, very nice this time of year. Of course, the comedy club is in the hotel that they're putting me up at. So the fact that the two things I want to do while I'm there, which are sleep and stand-up, are in the exact same place makes it really unlikely for me to try to get to downtown Calgary. Because last time I did that, um, I had to get driven into town. And this time, I want to be a little bit more independent, so I might have to take a bus or walk. I know that I can see Calgary from the hotel. So we'll see how that goes. Anyway, that's where I'm going to be if you're a Calgaryite. Uh, and some of you mofos have been showing up at shows. Again, there was a couple, some people that showed up to the shows in Seattle. I would assume some people came to the Portland shows and or the Austin shows. Um, and I, I appreciate that. If you're, uh, if you're Canadian and live in Alberta and live in Calgary, come out. Come out wherever you are. Um, but, yeah, so I was just busy as fuck. And uh, it's been a while since I've been busy and doing the podcast at the same time. So I got to find that balance again. And I'm hoping to uh, do that for you mofos. Since I feel like I'm starting to build a thing here, guys. It's starting to become something. It's starting to become someone. And something inside the someone. Uh, I had a nervous breakdown. A panic attack, I believe is what it's called. I had one in between Portland and Austin. I thought it would be a great idea to drive from Portland to Los Angeles in one day. Which, if done without stops, is a 14-hour drive. Now, my whole supporting argument to why I could do this is because I did it last year. 
and I did do it last year. But I didn't remind myself that it was a horrible failure last year. I don't know why I thought me failing at doing this thing once was enough of a reason to try a second time. The first time, I left Portland really late. I had uh, dinner with or a lunch with two people, a gentleman named Rob and a gentlewoman named Lisa who are married. They own a fantastic uh, restaurant in Portland called Mother's. Which, if you were in Portland and you haven't been to Mother's, then you're not really in Portland. You know what I'm saying? Because it's a state of mind, bro. Anyway, I was there last year and I had lunch with them. And then I drove at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was going to get to San Francisco. But then I realized that I didn't tell anyone I knew in San Francisco that I was going to be in San Francisco. So by the time I realized that, I was an hour out of San Francisco. And it was almost 11 p.m. And I was like, you know what? I don't know why I'm going to go to San Francisco because it's Monday. I didn't tell anyone I know that I'm coming to San Francisco and that I need a place to stay. And really, I wouldn't see anyone. I would just sleep and then leave the next day. And uh, and then I'm also the people who I'd be able to stay with. I'm giving them no notice on a night that they're probably already asleep because they have to work on Tuesday. So I decided to soldier on and started to hallucinate for three hours. And that's that's the standard that I held myself to. I was like, oh, when I hallucinated last year because of the lack of sleep and how long I was doing this, maybe I'll just not do that this year. But unfortunately, I woke up sick the day I was supposed to leave Portland. And uh, seven hours into the 14-hour drive, I pulled over to a town that should just be called Walmart, California. And I went into the Walmart, said Walmart, to get a few vitamins and stuff for my sickness. Because by the time I got to this town... I was shaking with feverish chills and dizzy, so dizzy that I was in denial that I was that dizzy. I, I was really, really dizzy. When I got out of the car to walk into the store, I looked like I was a drunk person that was driving because I was like, like everything was spinning. And I was like, this isn't real. People don't get this dizzy. That's what I was saying in my head. I'm like, people don't really get, Baron, you're acting right now. There's no need to convince yourself you're dizzy. You're dizzy enough. Stop putting on the dizzying airs. But I was that dizzy. And then I went into a hotel room and kind of fell to my knees and cried nonstop. What? Yeah, I know. But it's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because it revealed a lot of things to me that I need to solve. I knew this was on the horizon, guys. I've been talking about having a nervous breakdown. So I knew that it was going to happen at some point, that something was going to crack. And, I, and it did. And I just realized that I am putting way too much stress into my life. I'm putting way too much pressure on myself, I mean to say, stressing myself out, burying myself under anxiety. But then I'm in insane denial about the stress, the level of stress and anxiety I'm at. I'm just like, ah, it's okay. People have it worse. I go to that thing. Ah, people have it worse. And then I never let myself feel what it is that I'm feeling because I'm just kind of like in it. And I'm like, Okay, I know what this place is. I know what it is, but it doesn't mean that I have to like sit. Even because I feel like I sit a lot. I feel like I sit and then I beat myself up for sitting. So really, I don't get to sit because I'm yelling at myself for sitting the whole time that I'm sitting. What are you doing? Sitting? I'm like Arlie Ermy in Full Metal Jacket. Come on, movie reference. Anyway, guys, it was good. It was healthy. <laughs> is that a thing? Can you have it? Was, was it healthy? But uh, who knows if it'll happen again? This is only the second time this has happened. The first time I was like a freshman in college, and I was being dumped after I flew from Las Vegas. <laughs> I, fl I flew from Boston, Las Vegas, to try to salvage a relationship and got dumped. 
and then I started shaking and couldn't understand why. Anyway, it was a similar thing. I was like, boom, crying, and I don't know what's going on. But I don't cry. That's another thing, guys. I don't really cry. And I, I know that crying is healthy. Crying is your brain's reset button. You know when you're losing at your Nintendo game and you just hit reset and you pull out the cartridge and blow into it? That's what your brain is doing when you cry. It's blowing into the cartridge and hitting the, hitting the machine a little bit and being like, let's start this over. That's what's going on. Let's out all these endorphins and chemicals that make you feel better. You have to feel bad to feel better. Not that I'm saying, not that I'm advocating feeling bad and dwelling. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about anymore. The point is, I feel like I had a reset and I feel good about things and I need to give myself permission to relax here and there and fucking just shut the fuck up <laughs> and sit and zone out sometimes. But on the other side, I need to learn how to be productive. See, that's the thing. I'm always busy and rarely productive. Let me rewind that. Here's the thing. I'm always busy and rarely productive. Okay? I tweeted that. Some of you saw it. I hope some of you saw it. It doesn't really matter. Point is that I need to fucking start listing things. I got all these ways that I'm going to solve my life. <laughs> Let's see how they play out, guys. Anyway. This is a really long introduction, but that's fine. I got an uh, email from a gentleman named uh, Dejan, I want to say. Dejan Digital on Twitter. Hello, sir. I was going to write you back, and I never did because I wanted to give some thought to your answers or to your questions. I wanted to give thought to the answers I had to your questions, but now I'm going to do it out loud. So let me... Let me read a little of this email so that way you know mofos, you mofos know what the hell going on. Um, this guy saw me at Acme in Minneapolis, which uh, Acme, bring me back me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, God. You know when you get disgusted with yourself? That's what that was right there. So he asked me um, how I – well, let me read this paragraph. I really dug your show. <laughs> Thanks. After hearing you on the Champs podcast, Johnny Pemberton's podcast, Pemberton, a Minneapolis native. Reading a couple books, doing three, two to three mics a week. Very nice. Running a company and doing saxophone stuff. Very nice. Don't get stand-up stage fright anymore. But I'm wondering how you crafted your act to highlight your theater training without pigeonholing your niche, niche, niche as that black actor comedian. I brought my horn on stage a few times to do a character and always get asked, you bring your horn? Look. If you're doing a character and you're going to play your saxophone, that's totally fine. A character could do whatever the hell it is. Are you relying on your saxophone all the time in your stand-up? Who knows? You could do that. There are plenty of people that take musical instruments on stage all the time and play them. Obviously, Dimitri Martin and Nick Thune have done that. Mitch Hedberg, every now and then, used to have a guy play stand-up bass on the stage while he did his jokes. There's nothing wrong with putting music in your comedy and doing musical comedy. Now... Are other comedians going to give you a fucking hard time? Yes. Yes, they are. You already got it. You bring your horn. Look, if you want to use your saxophone in your act, fucking do it. But also, have a good act. That's the other thing. The three comedians I just mentioned, Dimitri Martin, Nick Thune, and Mitch Hedberg, you know what they all have? Really good fucking jokes. So it doesn't matter that they have a musical instrument on it. People are still going to tune in. And, they, and they've all done stand-up without those instruments. Do stand up without your saxophone so you don't become saxophone reliant. That's my suggestion. Do stand up. And if you want to bring your saxophone on stage every now and then to add a little ambiance, 
you know, if you want to hit a one-liner, then play Careless Whispers every now and then, do that shit. You know, nothing wrong with that. Hey, you guys, stories about improv are always really boring. Every time someone tries to tell me one, I'm like, yes, and no, you don't have to play that much of it. Okay, next question. Um, what is my personal goal in being a comedian? Holy shit. If I knew that, I wouldn't be a comedian. I feel like part of stand-up and comedy is finding out what the hell it is those things actually mean. I'm kind of suspicious of anyone that has... When people ask me, that's my least favorite question, is uh, where does your comedy come from? I don't fucking know. There's no one place I am deciding my comedy has to come from. The comedy comes. I'm looking at all these different aspects of my life and all these different ways that I see things and I try to call. <laughs> I'm not going to call. That's the wrong word of call. That's the wrong usage of the word call. I try to create engender comedy out of whatever I think is interesting or funny. There's no one place that it comes from. So in that same way, I don't necessarily know what my personal goal as a comedian is except to be a good comedian, maybe a great comedian, which is a big thing. I put. I want to be a great comedian. I don't want to be a good comedian. So I put a lot of pressure on myself, I think, which sometimes keeps me from being just a good comedian <laughs> because I have such high expectations on myself. So my personal goal as a comedian is to be a great comedian that people know and people like and to do comedy that I really love that I believe in saying things that I want people to think about and figuring out ways to make that shit funny. You know, I want to be, fuck, I want to be as good as a, a Richard Pryor. I want to be as good as a Chris Rock or a Dave Chappelle or a Louis C.K. or a Bill Burr or a Patton Oswalt or a Paula Tompkins or an Ellen DeGeneres. You know what I'm saying? Like these fucking great comedians. I want to be in that oeuvre, in that pantheon. Is it bombast to say such things? Is it a lofty goal? Yes. But tis lofty goals we need to make us rise up. To make us rise up. Alright. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And then you also had a request about uh, me recording the podcast at higher levels. Done and done. I'm still fucking and futzing with the levels. Um, I like that I said fuck and then futz. Because we all know futzing is worst. It's Yiddish. Whoa. No, I'm still fucking with the levels. I'm still fucking with how loud things can be. So, and I'll admit it right now. This podcast you're about to listen to, levels are kind of shitty. So, whatevs. <laughs> the ideas, however, totes good. Totes good. Totes, totes good, guys. Anyway, this podcast right now is with Guy Branham a man that I love, who I think you love too. We haven't seen him since the turn of the year, but he was in town and I got to sit down with him and we talked about, well, let me rewind that. But he was in town and we got to sit down and talk about frivolity. What the hell does that mean? Well, you're about to find out. Guy Branham style. Bye. Somebody, somebody, if you want to party, say party. time I had a friend who had got, he'd been in a relationship for like six months with this guy who was also friends 
with the rest of my friends. And then I invited one of them, but not the other, to Passover, which made it like a thing. And so... Accidentally, though? Unintentional? or No, no, no. Uh, like, you didn't know that na- guy. Their names were Casey and Powell. And the thing is, is, they hadn't been together so long that I was really thinking of it in terms of, oh, you must invite one of you, invite the other. Right, and right. Powell would not enjoy this. Like, Passover is not for Powell. Um, I ended up inviting Powell the next year because it had been such an issue, and then they didn't come. They left the city. They went to Las Vegas for the weekend so that they wouldn't be here while it was going on. But, like... Wait, do you know that they did that? Are you inferring that? They said that we left on purpose. No, Casey was like, we're just going to not be in town that weekend. Okay. Um, Because it's like, Casey, you know, loves these stupid games. Casey loves being put on the spot. Casey loves... Like, you open up the dinner with forced, moderately invasive questions. Everybody has to ask someone else at the table a moderately invasive question. Aparna Nantrula asked my friend Nigel, have you ever, during sex, just thought about someone else the entire time? If so, who was the person you were having sex with and who were you thinking about? Okay. Like, that's a high level of invasive from Aparna Nantrula, but yeah. she's, she's a comedian. She can take it. And I also... I also I cannot imagine Aparna uh, asking that question, but I also don't know her as well as you do. Yes. Um, And it was like, it was, I very much appreciated that she opened it up enough to answer the question that she got. I forget what it was. And to, and to give the question that she gave, because it like, my Passover is social fight club. My Passover is social fight club where everybody comes ready to hit and get hits. Um, Like, I am ready for this. Terrible things were sad. Next year guy? It's the best. This guy. Look, you almost you almost got floated one of the last minute invites. Not one of the original <laughs> invites, but one of the last minute invites. It's an excuse it's an exclusive. It's like the Vanity Fair Oscar uh, party. You were going to Las Vegas and That's true, I did go I, to Vegas. I needed to beef up the number of heterosexuals, but I also heterosexual men, but I also needed to beef up the number of Jews because I need Jews present so that they can appreciate it is Pesach. Just what I'm doing. Well, and the thing is, is like I need somebody who's been to an actual Pesach so that they can be like, oh wow, this is great. Um, <laughs> so you need some recognition for your yes. efforts. So I got rewrites. I got Androsky and uh, and Zach Sherwin here. Sherwin was a particularly great get because his mom is a rabbi, right? Exactly. And he was just dazzled, as one should be. And he's probably going to tell his mom about it too. Yes, he took one of the hagadot, one of the scripts, to be like, "Can I take this?" Um, and that's what I want. Is you know, I want appreciation. I want people to be dazzled. I put way too much time and effort and money you're, you're, into this thing. This is new reform. Because it Judaism. should be. Yes. <laughs> this is extra but reform. But it is classic. Like, okay. it, is, it is classic in that it is doing all of the things that uh, a Passover is supposed to do. Um, except, like, it wasn't kosher. Because, as my mom put it, I don't need to eat shitty food to know that someone wanted to kill me. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you speak in punchlines. Um, I, well, this kind of relates to what I was going to say, which is that I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm starting to believe more in cheesy shit, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote cheesy shit. See, I've, I've, I realize how often I've sat at home by myself, lonely thinking through how happy I am. I'm not partaking in cheesy shit. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, people are at parties, going to movies and having friends. Ugh. Overrated and like, wait a minute, I'm wrong. Obviously, I'm wrong. I'm sitting here staring at a wall, <laughs> upset about being alone when 
everything that people do to be together, I have decided is stupid. So obviously, I'm incorrect. Well, th- there is something very nice about we get to define our own lives. We get to decide to decide mm-hmm. things for ourselves. Um, both you and I have taken relatively non-traditional approaches to like how sex and relationship works, and and that's cool. But it also means that you lose out on some of the cheesy shit. Um, I over the course of like the past two years did become obsessed with like the concept of marriage and what a marriage actually means because I had long been of the opinion that, well, you should just commit yourself to someone and you prove it by being committed. You don't prove it by having some sort of ceremony where you make huge statements about how much you love each other. Cause things like that, I think particularly to a comedian, anytime someone's talking about, um, the vast and the grand and the magical and true love or anything like that. You're it's, like, and it's not funny. Yes, you're like, and it's not funny because because when it's funny, you're questioning it. Yeah, because when you're funny, when you're making it funny, you're making implicit the the problems in in the things that you're saying. But when people take it seriously, um, you're like, this is gross. <laughs> but I think that there is something. As time has gone on, I've realized that there is something very beautiful mm-hmm. to these structures and things like making it, making leaving someone hard, making leaving someone hard um, and having a party, like a marriage as a party to tell your parents in the world, I'm an adult, I can make my own choices. That was me burping because we're drinking soda water. And then just having a structure in place. So that it is hard to, to leave. leave each other, right? Which is like, um, it, there's more, there's more uh, impetus to work things out, yeah, and to work through things. People, I think, tend to have very little patience. Yeah, and uh, like just just knowing that you have to go through a, a year of legal work to leave somebody instead of just leaving them. I'm sorry, there's. I don't know if that car alarm's going to no show up. There's a car alarm going off. I don't know if it'll actually show up. Uh, but like. Having these structures in place forces you to step back and question, why am I leaving? What am I doing? All of these things that maybe make it you a, a little more inclined to to stay in this relationship because relationships maybe, I don't know, aren't just about sweetness and happiness in the beginning. They're also about just doing the work to stay with someone and work with someone. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but holidays, I think, are similar in that it is... E- it's easy for us to ignore a holiday. Like, oh, you can you can avoid a lot of work by just not doing stuff for a holiday. This year for like Christmas, even though I am Jewish, my family primarily celebrated Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not go home this year because Debbie and I were having issues. Um, and there was something nice about just being in my house, but it also meant that I a little bit, you know, you lost out on the magic. And so I <laughs> I ended up ritualizing it. In a different fashion, my friend Ryan was also staying, and so I went and we made um, a Quebecois pigeon pie because that's a thing that they do for Christmas, um, and I like wanted to have something. They're so strange, those uh, French Canadians. It's true, um, but like I, you went to partake in some sort of ritual that acknowledged what, and to just to just do something to like pretend that magic exists, like to have <laughs> to put a little magic. Um, on the on the night and Passover, for me is that Passover is like the thing when I when I first like had a home of my own 
after law school, when I first was sort of le leading the life that I wanted to lead, to lead, I started having a Passover Seder and just started out with like me and my roommates and two other people. But it was still like me structuring a holiday as like a celebration. Yay, it's spring. Like it's a, it's a good holiday. It's right. like Easter. It's a yay, it's spring holiday. But then I turned it into a yay, it's everything I love. I cooked a bunch of food. My friends are going to be funny for me. Right, right. Um, and then like we're going to celebrate everything that I love about this world. And I haven't done it for several years. Mm. And because I was like buckled down and I need to like work on my career and I don't have time for this. And I think, I mean... What we're going towards on this episode, I think, yeah. is you need to have time for these things. Like, you need to have time for these stupid things. You need to give stuff to yourself. There are purple flowers in my house. This, this A lot of different kinds of purple. Lilac, purple, violet, puce. And this is expensive. Like, this is kind of a stupid waste of money. Um, but, but you're tithing. Yes. You I, I'm tithing... To um, to myself and to <laughs> like the the beautiful things that don't matter because I'm a depressive like I'm a depressive and things can go very bad very quickly for me. Same here. Yeah. Um, I'm only recently. It's it's still a new development for me. Uh, how do you mean? Meaning that uh, understanding that I get depressed. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to work on a chunk about my new relationship with depression. What was it before? I didn't ever consider it. It wasn't even in my wheelhouse as a thing that could happen. And I'm taking the, the tack of, the tactic of, I think it's racial. I think it takes minorities longer to know that we're depressed, especially black people in America, because, Be because it's just not part of the vocabulary of anything that's taught to us. You just construe it as your circumstance? Yeah. We construe it as our circumstance. It's the man. Yes. Okay. I was driving home from my first writing job. My first writing job, I could work any hours that I wanted, and so I stayed very late frequently because I so desperately overworked that job. And I was driving, and NPR was doing a story on Howlin' Wolf. Uh, are you familiar with Howlin' Wolf? Yes, I am. Uh, he's blues man. Um, and I had never really paid much attention to any, Af like any African-American music that wasn't by a woman like i i didn't really i knew that i was supposed to like the blues i knew that i was supposed to respect rap in ways like i didn't care <laughs> it was it wasn't for me right uh and i was listening to it and he's like they sang the song um who sang it uh it, it was actually helen wolf it was helen wolf okay. it was like a recording of him singing um 300 pounds of fun and i was like oh that's wonderful that man is celebrating something that is like part of my identity this man is like owning being gigantic and he's being awesome about it and as they played more stuff i realized oh jesus christ uh like black culture like everyone's depressed like it is a, <laughs> a culture of everyone being situationally depressed this isn't mental chemical depression this is the world being shitty to you and you having to manage that by sort of being in it and and i think that the difference between us and Helen Wolf, yeah, is that he had no choice but to be in it, right? And we now, especially because it's a digital age, we can retreat from humanity for long periods of time and have kind of digitized versions of it. How do you mean? 
Meaning that I cannot see people for a full week. Yeah. But I text, I IM, I email, I Facebook, I Twitter, I Instagram. I still have those are like my substitute my substitutes for human interaction. But I think those are very valuable. And I don't know if this is just me having played The Sims enough over the course of my life, but I I, I like that I can get my social taken care of in these sort of modular they're, ways. They're valuable, but they're not a substitute. You can't yeah. just do that. You know, and I'll substitute those, I think, for too long before I actually need to see someone. Well, yeah, and I, I think with so many of these things, uh, you know, w- we've killed God and remade the world, and we don't necessarily respect the wisdom of people who came before us and the ways that they approach the world and sort of, like, get the benefit of that. But New traditionalism. I, this is what I want to say. No, I, finish your point, but remind me of this. Okay. By the way, uh, our subject today... Is frivolity, and which we're we're slowly moving towards. I'm going to get us to there directly. Do it, guy. It took me several years after this Howlin' Wolf point of being fascinated by it because the blues are this very interesting cultural structure of letting yourself steep in what's what's going wrong around you, um, and it, it took me a really long time before I realized, um, like. With black people, you have a name for who and what you are based on a physical difference. With gay people, we don't often think about the word that we use to apply to gay people. We say they are happy, which is weird for a group of people who commit suicide in such ridiculous numbers. Um, And it, it was only within the past couple of years that I realized, oh, Jesus Christ, we kind of can't sing the blues because the blues would eat us. Like, um, we, you know... Unless you're Cole Porter. For, for all of history. <laughs> um, but but the thing is, is, Cole Porter wasn't about the blues. It wasn't the bruise. It wasn't it was, the bruise. It, it, was, was, it wasn't the blues. It was say. gaiety. Like, and what I, basically what I realized is frivolity mm-hmm. is this thing that we have used to to deal with the sadness around us that we have like, I will never know love. My mom doesn't like me. I don't get to have babies, but also pretty flowers. Um, <laughs> like also in a, in a hell of a Passover party. Yeah. Or pretty lyrics or like, you know, lovely fabrics. Like we, like there's something very much about like, in, like instant immediate, like physical pleasure like us like cultural pleasure or like you know like very material pleasure um that we sort of embrace and and love and and that's awesome that the thing that we have figured out to get our ourselves through the world is just making ourselves happy enough to get to tomorrow um interesting good i like me gusta yeah um I was thinking about Marlo Stanfield while you were speaking. Right, who's there. Marlo Stanfield? Marlo Stanfield is a character from uh, the HBO uh, series The Wire. Okay, um, he appears. A, I think he appears about the end of the third season. You have you watched The Wire? No, I have not. The first season is uh, the. I mean, each season kind of expands into a different 
portion of Baltimore. Yeah. The, Baltimore is the true star of the show. Uh-huh. I'm going to say things that people will probably disagree with, or right. uh, I'm going to sound like I made shit up that I know I haven't, uh, and I've read this as well. So Baltimore, I would say, is the star of the show, mm-hmm. right? So David Simon, who created the show, was a newspaper reporter yeah. reporting on crime in Baltimore. So he created this show called The Wire, and basically the first season is mostly about the police force uh-huh. and how it works and the bureaucracy that they have to go through and set up to create a wiretap to monitor a particular crack gang. Mm-hmm. And that ends up happening. The second season is about the docks in Baltimore. And then suddenly we meet these dock workers and it opens up into a bigger world of organized crime that is also connected to the crack gang from the uh-huh. first season. The third season is about City Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so that opens up to how the government of the city reacts to um, the crime in the city and uses the police to enforce it and all the, all the hands in every single pocket. Yeah. Because there's always shades of gray in every single – there's good and bad in every single thing. Well, and also organized crime is a political structure. Like it is, it a, is thing a political that keeps structure. the city going exactly. as much as City Hall is. So I imagine that they relate to each other. Absolutely. And there are certain people that are in City Hall that have their hands in the pockets of organized yeah. crime. Uh, and then the fourth season, which a lot of people arguably say is the best season. I tend to like the third season because mm-hmm. the third season is like Shakespeare to me. Yeah. The fourth season is about the schools. It's these neighborhoods have been uh, destroyed, dilapidated, Mm -hmm. and these children are slowly farmed into the crime system, Mm -hmm. which goes up and all relates. And then the fifth season is the the newspaper. So it's like how all these different structures kind of – I had no idea. I had always just assumed that it was pretty exclusively a crime show. That's very that's very interesting. That's why it's incredible because yeah. you because it shows how all these different things can relate and affect each other. Yeah. And you see all these different person and there's the the writing and the performances are just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So Marlo Stanfield, basically there's Avon Barksdale in the first season. Uh-huh. Who's played by uh Wood Harris, mm-hmm. right? So he's the kingpin. But of course, the game is the game, which is like the that's basically the theme of the of the show, which is like it doesn't matter if you put certain people in jail. Mm-hmm. There's people that are going to come behind them. Yeah. So Marlo Stanfield in the third season is this new kid on the block that starts to become a leader of this gang and starts to to earn his spot and to become bigger and bigger. And there's this one scene where he goes into a quickie mart mm-hmm. and there's a security guard there who's watching him. And almost as a test, he just starts putting stuff in his pocket. To see what the security guard will do. And the security guard sees it and kind of looks the other way because he knows who Marlo is. Yeah. So when Marlo walks out, the security guard runs after him and he's like, I, I, you know, and he's trying to like basically say, don't disrespect me. I don't want to disrespect you. And he tries like not to look him in the eyes. He's like, I'm not stepping to you. I'm just saying, I'm a man. I have Bill. I have children, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there's this one thing that Marlo says. He's like, you want things to be one way, but they're the other way. Mm-hmm. And then he walks away. It's like, Ugh. and then he tells his henchman to kill that guy. Yeah. He's like, you got to kill him for mouthing off to me. He's like, really? But he's just a security guard. He talked to me. And that's it. It's just like, Ugh, yeah. he's a scary man. But I was thinking about you want things to be one way, right? But it's the other way. So I feel like what you're talking about is balance. Mm-hmm. You know, we're depressives. Yeah. I guess that I know that I feel sometimes resistant to the nice things. 
Yeah. Because I feel like, well, that doesn't solve what's going on. But it but now that I'm thinking about it in the way that you present it, it doesn't not solve yes. what's going on. What's wrong with See, I feel and that's what I'm saying. Like, it seems like everyone's like, oh, everything's supposed to be one way. Yeah. So it's like I have a relatively nice car. Mm-hmm. People have given me shit about it. Yes. Especially because in the last couple of months, my financial life has crashed. Right. But I still have that that obligation that I have to meet. Yes. And people are just like, why didn't you not do that? Which right. is basically the that's the brunt of everybody's financial advice is why yes. didn't you not do that? Yes. I'm like, well, because two years ago when I got the car, I'm like, this is not going to break me. It's not crazy expensive. Yes. I would, this is my first car ever. This is the two bedroom apartment that I rented back when I was a regular on a TV show. There, like, and it's a nice apartment. Yes. Is one an office? Uh, it was. Now it's where a partner lives. Now it's where, okay. <laughs> it's where a partner lives, which yes. is fine. You and a partner's roommates. It makes me very happy. You should rent out a portion of your car is what I'm saying. <laughs> Rent out the back seat of it. Yes. Uh, okay, I could possibly do that. Uh, if you guys have any suitcases, you need the store. Um, but it's just like whenever I try to do a nice thing for myself, yes. because I'm like, okay, I I like certain comforts because I feel like I need those to balance myself. Yes, people give me grief about it. Do you feel like as a black man, you are more self conscious about consumer spending? Yes and no. Okay. Um, I've never really thought about that way, but I think I am. Yeah. I think I am. Yeah, definitely. Because I feel like it's so easy for, it's so easy to be like, tisk, tisk, tisk. You people wouldn't be in this situation if you didn't buy all of those shoes. Well, uh, and that, that's the thing. And I have a lot of fucking shoes, but it's yeah. also like when I was in high school, I didn't wear anything that had, uh, I didn't like logos. Yeah. Because that was always, it was, it was the sign of yes. stature. I'm wearing this big-ass Nike swoosh. Look at the three stripes of my Adidas. Here's my Kangol, you know, stuff like that. I won't wear a Kangol, actually. But that's because of Samuel Jackson. That's beside the point. But it's like, I never liked that. Um, my, I, my parents are working class, and I grew up with a very don't-do-anything-wasteful, nose-to-the-grindstone, keep going, and that was just what I did. It was, you know... like you're supposed to work hard and be practical right and you know there's always this vision of of working your way out of it but none of the people that i knew ever ever did uh and the only sort of the only acceptable pleasures were food or alcoholism um and alcoholism not just alcohol yeah, yeah, I didn't know. Like, you were either so Christian that you didn't drink alcohol. My dad's family was so Christian that they didn't drink alcohol, and my mom's family were Jews and heathens, and they were all they were all drunks. Like, my mom's not related to a guy who isn't a drunk. Okay. Um, and so I was being a hardworking, virtuous, good person until. So I didn't come out in college. In in law school, I'm like in law school doing what I'm supposed to do. It's Minnesota. It's cold and terrible. And my life is horrible. I come out to my parents. I get a crush on a boy for the first time, and I feel horrible about it. It's stupid. Why do I have a crush on this person? Why am I, why am I feeling all of these emotions that are excessive un, and unnecessary? It's not practical. There's nothing reasonable about this. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, like, hit the crash point in January of 2000. Of mm. Just, like, the boy I liked was mean to me. Um, and it wasn't terrible what he did, but it just hurt me 
Because you told him that you liked him? He knew that I liked him. I didn't know how to... I don't know if you've met me, Baron, but I'm not really good at hiding things. And it's so weird that I stayed closeted for as long as I did. Okay. And, like, the minute I stopped being closeted, I was just like, oh, like, I just needed to tell people about every emotion that I had. <laughs> and like I'm so pent up. In, Min- in Minnesota, no one wants to hear that. Um, and it was like... The terrible point. It was for me the terrible point of I don't know how I keep going on. Okay. And then nice lady put me on drugs and I was on one drug for a month and I just slept the whole time. Um, and then finally we realized that was not a good thing and that she switched me to another drug, which separated me from the horrible enough that I started putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. But one of the things that I realized there is that the like the first battle is not letting the horrible get a hold of me. The first battle is just having enough, like, <laughs> that being happy is an end. Like, that, that being happy is a part of it and is necessary. Because as Americans, I, there is a, a Protestant sensibility of, um, like, not wanting gratification like I, I feel like the problem is is that we don't allow ourselves official gratification. Mm-hmm. We'll never be nice to ourselves because we should be working hard. And we get so full of just working hard and working hard and never being nice to ourselves that we then take the worst and stupidest ty- types of gratifications mm. um, instead of doing things that are good and lovely and good for you. Well, envy and jealousy are incredible emotions uh-huh. and because i'm th- was when you're saying that i'm thinking that like yeah there's the protestant work ethic of that's what i'm thinking like when i say everything has to be one way that we're, we have this obsession with pragmatism yes that's like no you are always supposed to be this one thing right you can't have this other stuff yes and so i feel like when i do something nice for myself people just assume that that's what i'm doing is mm-hmm. i'm going out squandering my money left and right yeah because that's if, if that's what I'm doing, that must be the only thing that I do. Yeah. I must not be working hard to squander this money. Yeah. And I feel like there, the, the whole the, uh, contradiction of the American dream is work hard and get everything that you can. Hmm. But it's not fair if someone else has more than you. Right. So I'm thinking of the guy who lives next door to the guy who bought a boat. Yeah. And now he's looking at that boat. And the boat becomes a symbol of what he wants and what he should have been doing or what he'll never have. Yeah. Thus, he turns to the bottle mm-hmm. or the back of the hand. Right. Or the Bible. Well, the sense of what he'll never have um, is very interesting to me because I think that the most practical thing, like if you're in that situation where it's so tearing you apart that that guy's rich and he's got a boat. But it's not even that he's rich, though. Yeah. It's almost like, this is unfair. I'm working hard. How does he have that? I've never seen... If he has that, he must not be working hard. Yes. He's sailing? Like, like you, you, you can't let yourself get torn apart by this notion of, I want this thing and I will never have it. Because I grew up with a presumption on so many levels of... I want these things and I will never have them. The most obvious is um, like 
the the sex thing just sort of that until i was in my 20s i assumed i will never get to touch a boy i will never get to tell him that i like him i will never that will just never happen that's mm-hmm. not a possibility mm-hmm. but there are much more subtle things like um you know i grew up with idiots like i grew up in a small town where n- nobody looked beyond the place that they were um and i certainly liked people while i was there but i never thought i would have people who got me. Mm. And now that I do have people that get me, I sometimes think of it as being unnecessary or you should be able to live without that or, or whatever it is. And, and like treasuring, treasuring that and letting that mean something to me when the world around me says that it doesn't is, it's like a hard thing that I need to keep track of. It's an important part of, of what Passover is. And also like, it's very, we live in a world that does not have structures for the kinds of relationships that m- are meaningful to me. So I have to do the work of, of creating it. Yes. And then finding someone who's okay and wants to fit into that. Yeah. And, and like also, I mean, one of the things is that's why I became a comic. Like why I became a comic was about self-expression and about because this is something I'm good at and all of that. But the primary motivating thing was law school in Minnesota was a dark, dark place. So I went to where there would always be interested people. And like that choice brought you to me. That choice brought so many people to me. And that's, that's beautiful. Like that's a reason to stay on this planet. What a point. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's uh, and I and I and I I get you. I get that. See, and I I I tend to go nah. <laughs> that's right. what I go. But it's like no, that is true, in a lot of ways. And it's it's weird because <laughs> it's like, but you're this is the this is the magic though. This is this is the magic. But there there are problems with this as well. There are people who are less good at doing this thing that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean talking? Well, but also sort of like of celebrating the goofy and stupid stuff. Of okay. like being able to like I, I defend my right to like Beyonce and Carly Rae Jepsen. I get pissed off at somebody who tells me that they are less good music than your stupid Decemberist or whatever. <laughs> like um, that sort of stuff. Or, uh, you know, um, I can tell Megan Keister and Parnan and Sherla and you that I love you, but I can't say that to a gay guy I have had sex with. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like nothing seems more ew or no or just stop. Like, don't do that than that. Well, it's so it's so easy to be negative, mm-hmm. and we. I don't remember who I was talking about this to. I've heard this theme starting to come up about um, that uh, we, it's so easy to be negative because it, it's guarded. Mm-hmm. It's a guarded stance. Yeah. If you dislike everything, right. you never have to reveal yourself. Have you ever been in a scripted writer's room? Uh, what do you mean? Like on a on a show like like your show or a sitcom or something like oh, that. Oh, uh, no, not really. No. Okay. Um, 
there's a thing called negative pitching, which is somebody pitches a story point or a joke or something like that, and somebody just responds with, this is why it won't work. And it's a, a very bad thing, like, because you can just get to a place if everybody's doing that to everyone and then nothing moves forward. Mm. And so the idea is, like, you if you say that won't work, you should always back that up with a, here's a different way of approaching it that will work. Here's mm. a joke that will work. Um, and I feel like so much of hipsterdom, and I realize it's it's very lame to be addressing it as hipsterdom, but sort of like ironic distance, you know, um, it, it's just saying, ooh, that thing is stupid, ha, 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 without providing any sort of like, reality or hear something that I, I do love. And I think that there is something deeply conservative in that mm -hmm. because it is a accepting this culture for, for what it is. And it's trying to say that you're, you're better than this culture, but it's also dealing with a culture that already fits your needs. Like, you know, that like, um, like, I don't know. I like, I talk about marginalization too much. I other myself too much. But like, <laughs> I feel like I do need to figure out just how to like things. Like, I do need to figure out like just the way that I like things. Right. I do need space just to be able to celebrate like that boy is cute. Um, you know, like. Well, I mean, that's and that's exactly what I'm talking about. We ha ha ha. Sexy fireman calendars. Ha ha ha. Sexy fireman calendars are stupid. Ha ha ha. Okay. But like sexy fireman calendar, being able to look at that and like it is a an achievement and a victory I never thought that I would have. Um, so I must always embrace that. And it's easy to guard yourself by talking shit about it. And I, I hope to be brave enough to say, no, I like it. That is a good thing. It's more revealing. It's more personal. You're putting yeah. yourself out there. And that's, I guess that's what I mean when I say that I'm, I'm coming around to quote unquote cheesy shit. Yeah. That like, that, like when people talk about, oh, my book club. And I used to go like, well, that's stupid. But I'm like, no, mm -hmm. to read a book and to engage with a group of people yeah. in a discussion about the themes of that book, you're going to learn so much about other people's ideas, right. other people's lives, how they connect to yours, how you relate. And it's, that's incredible. And when you, I think about the book club, I'm like, holy shit, that's actually a fantastic idea. And you're taking a moment out of your day to do this thing instead of all of like the bullshit, low-key, stupid interactions that you, that you would have with people. And it's not that much. And like, aren't you going to be more productive and a better person the rest of your life? or the rest of your month for having had that time with your book club. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I always, um, I did this like thing in San Francisco at Berkeley actually last week. It was called the nerd night. And it was like three people talked about nerdy things. The other two were academics. I talked about the war of 1812. One guy <laughs> talked about meteorites and one guy talked about sleep. But basically what he said was here are all of the ridiculously valuable things that happen during sleep. And this is what makes you so much more productive when you get enough sleep. And I never let myself get enough sleep because I'm always like, must be working, must be working. When you have a job like ours, you always must be being productive because you're only cheating yourself. Right, right. Um, and I can get into this point of like, 
being so focused on being productive that I'm unproductive. And I kind of see this in my parents of like my parents are so many generations uh, into being members of the proletariat that they just <laughs> have this slave mentality and just are constantly like just constantly in the middle of drudgery and they don't have holidays and they don't have, they never give themselves celebrations and like the, you know, they like their, their only joy is ribs. So like, that's, you know, and they, you get the itis right after it. So what? you get the itis right after you have ribs. What's the itis? Oh my God, guy, you don't know what the itis is. What's the itis? The itis is the, uh, well, it's a black expression. Oh, okay. It's the feeling of lethargy, yes. of lethargy, yeah. that you have once yeah. you have had like a big ass portion of ribs, yeah, or some sort of heavy food, and you're like, oh man, that's the itis. That's interesting. I have never heard that before, but mm-hmm. that is that is what I was raised to live in. You know, that's what I was perpetual raised to itis. In. Yes, perpetual itis. <laughs> I like that. Um, and there's, and they would never buy strawberries because strawberries are too expensive, and strawberries are lovely and they're not bad for you so go ahead even when times are tough i get strawberries new traditionalism yeah because this relates okay i did something last night and this morning that i haven't done in a really long time okay cooked oh yes nice go for it for myself what did you make uh last night i made some lamb and uh like lamb chops nice and asparagus that's what I made. Grilled asparagus and mushrooms. It's springtime. You should have asparagus and mushrooms. You there you go. Have lamb. Then this morning, I just made myself an omelet. Three egg omelet with rosemary, thyme, arugula, spinach, mushrooms, and salami. All right. Let me first say. Yeah. You need to watch the video of Julia Child making an omelet. Julia Child does not put anything in an omelet. She, the omelet exists on its own. It is it is butter, eggs, and salt. Uh, I can't do the butter. That's the problem. Oh, are you lactose intolerant? Mm. Um, you can do I mean, it, I use olive oil butter. You can do it with olive oil. Right. But the point is, is like the magnificent simplicity of that um, is, a, it is a great pleasure. I think you should watch it, and I think you should make love to it. Um, <laughs> okay. I, when I was taking the bar... I would come home every night and make myself a meal. And it was such a weird way of using time mm-hmm. during, because the bar exam in California is three days long, which means two of those nights I could have been studying or something like that. And there was just something nice about like being in the moment and doing this thing. And at the end of it, you have a product that you have created and it's so satisfying. Um, and that's what I'm coming around to. Yes. Is I'm like, oh, it takes too much time. I'm, already, I'm hungry now. Yes. But I'm like, no, there's the ritual of it. The, the creating the, you know, the separating the ingredients and putting yeah. it together. That, it's art. Uh, Nora Ephron has a really, really great passage in Heartburn, her only novel, about how people say, oh, I love cooking because it's so creative. And her argument is, it's not creative. It is just the most... Like it is mindless and physical. It is creative. It is not artistic, but it is creative. Like it is, you're just producing a thing and there's just something so satisfying about seeing results. And I think that seeing results is a good thing that like having something short termy that sort of like plays out is good. Like one of the great things about a holiday, like there came this point where my mom was so like, 
under all of the shit that she had to do and all of the shit that she thinks she has to do that she like she made christmas breakfast at like 4 p.m like that was when she got it done and then like of course we didn't have dinner christmas dinner until like the next day or something like that mm-hmm. and it was just like you you are so what the, what the, what the fuck kind of mud are you caught in that you mm. like can't go through your life and maybe you need to if things are taking this long you need to get rid of the some of the things that you think you need to do um and i like i like my parties aparna asked me she was watching me cook all of this food and print up these stupid scripts and everything like that she was like what do you like about this and my favorite feeling is 15 minutes before people arrive when i go in and i rush and i take my shower and then i come out and i get a drink and like it's gonna happen now whether i like it or not it's gonna happen now Mm. um and i think that just uh oh at facebook they have a sign that says um done is better than perfect um and i think that a holiday being a day forces you to have a sense of done is better than perfect a meal done is better than perfect like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the at the end it is what it is and every time you make that recipe it's going to be a little bit different and every time you get better at it yeah you'll get better at it and that's the thing that's what i'm talking about like new traditionalism because i feel like our generation well i feel like our generation's parents i'm talking carter recession into reagan uh-huh um st- I feel like there's something about because I, I didn't really I was thinking about this the other day like it wasn't really until the late 80s mm-hmm. that moving away from everything that you knew as a norm of life yeah became started to become standard yeah that okay we're gonna move from this city that we grew up in to the other side of the country because that's where there are some jobs mm-hmm. nobody really did that you know what I mean so it's like suddenly we became a little bit more transient than ever we, ever we were so I feel like because of that there's there was more disconnect from people's roots yeah from people's families and that possibly the family unit started to erode uh-huh you know i'm not that i'm like uh jerry falwell over here but just it's like we we don't have any traditions we don't have and then i feel like our parents just hated their parents yeah <laughs> so much that instead of being good parents they just decided not to be parents well, they had us, and they were just like, "You're here. I'll feed you," but like that's pretty much it. Like they, I feel like a lot of our generation's parents um, were had so much of their own bullshit that they didn't figure out or couldn't figure out before they became parents, or they were still trying to figure out while they while they were parents. Yeah, and I feel like, like especially my generation, black men my age. Not ha- like when I know people whose parents are still together. Yeah, that's fucking crazy to me. Right, people are like, oh yeah, my mom and my dad are still together. I'm like, what? You grew up with two parents? Yeah, you grew up with that sub- quote unquote nuclear family unit. That's insane to me. Yeah. I just feel like there were so many absent fathers. Yeah, for my generation, you can't do that now. At Facebook. That's my new joke it's like now you have to not be on facebook it's just kind of like can you leave your child but then also you're not gonna be able to tweet yeah like after you do that because we'll we'll know where you are so it's like and our generation's parents people who are my age that are having kids are so obsessed with not being an absentee father yeah that they're just like in there like trying to take care of the kids all the damn time perhaps even smothering sheltering these kids too much yeah 
point is, I felt, and I feel like, I feel like a lot of people I know that are my age, um, I felt like I didn't really have a lot of structure to my life. Not that you need it, but it wasn't until way too late that I started becoming curious about my family's past yeah. and our history, just because it was never something that was ever talked about. I don't even know if it was necessarily that people were just trying not to talk about it mm -hmm. as much as it wasn't important. I don't care about that history yeah. because I got these bills to pay. Right. Right. So there's there, there was a disconnect, I think in the transients and then also moving into a neighborhood where you don't know anyone. Yes. Surrounded by other people who don't know anyone. And then we just don't know each other. It's a neighborhood of people that everyone's a stranger to everyone else. You're from New Mexico, Arizona? Vegas. Vegas, okay. I was born in New Mexico, and then uh, I moved to Las Vegas. Joan Didion writes really interestingly about the way California is California is populated by people who came here. And mm -hmm. so you always have, like, a, and a lot came in the past 60 years. But before that, there were still these waves of people showing up. And, it, like, it's people show up as strangers and behave as strangers to each other, where you don't have came from a relatively small town where there wasn't that much of a sense of community. There were things that were alienating, like on my mom's side being the Jews and sort of not understanding that mixing with other folk isn't something that we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my dad's family were the regular Arkansans that everyone else in our town was, but everybody still had this, like, distanced, weird relationship to each other that meant... There was, like, I'm, I was always stunned in the Midwest that, like, these towns of 10,000 people could do things that we couldn't do with 50,000 people. Like, community theaters and bands and stuff like that. And, like, knowing each other and relating to each other. And we just didn't do that because we were too busy. We were too busy. And plus, we, it just wasn't in our wheelhouse. Yeah. Again, like, I, I, and it's just, like, that's why I'm saying that, like, I feel there's this resurgence. I thought I'm calling it new traditionalism because yeah. it's not traditional as much as people in our generation are rediscovering these things are important. Community well, is important. They're having a network, a, a support system, shit like that. Two points. Uh, a capitalism is interesting and capitalism is, uh, capitalism is good. And it created a world where you can buy liquor on Sundays and you can get apricots whenever you want them. Except Massachusetts. Right. But, like, those things are – it used to be everybody had to have Christmas because everything was closed on Christmas. It used to be everybody had to have Sunday because things were closed on Sunday. And those laws are stupid. And when you go to one of those states, I'm like, what the fuck? Can't buy liquor on Sunday. But yeah. there's there's something to it creating that structure. And I think we are starting to – everybody's love of farmer's markets is finally realizing, you know, getting – like, everybody having the same Doritos – that was awesome for a while, <laughs> but being able to get what is good here when it's good is also awesome. And there's something exciting about when, when it's the seasonal. You know up. what? You're not supposed to have cherries all the goddamn time. Yes, you're yeah. supposed to have that, that's cherry time. Awesome, cherries are back. Yes. Have cherries, then say goodbye to cherries. Also, you have to like fucking beets if you want to eat local. Like you, you have to you have to like beets. You have to learn to like beets if you're in the Northeast, like because that's <laughs> okay. what you've got. But the other thing is. Uh, totally biased, the show that I work for is going daily in September. Yes, on FXX. Yes, it's in New York. Um, and that means that I have to move, cut, cut off much of my rootstock and attempt to take myself to somewhere that is gray and mean. Uh, and like 
I was, I'm scared of moving. Like, yeah, I, you can totally handle it. Uh, like, you can handle it, guy. That's lovely. And there's, and it, it is wonderful that comics are there. And like when I when I went for this most recent two months, there was something so beautiful about. A couple of weeks in, I went to a show, and Jackie Cation was there, and just like realizing, like, oh, this world of comedy exists, and people will will percolate in and out, and and that will be fine. But there are other things like other aspects of my life that I worry about and wor- worrying about them is important is what I'm saying. Is yeah. That, um, it, it's not, Oh, you can't move because you have like a gay social network here. It's not like you, you can't move because you know where like the ethnic restaurants are. It's just like, I need to understand that when I go to this other place, these stupid frivolous things are something I need to pay attention to or else this brain may kill me. Yeah. <laughs> this brain may kill me, which sounds like Shania Twain's next album. Yes. Uh, Aparna just walked in. Hey, Aparna, how Aparna. you doing? All right. Goodbye, Aparna. I like your shoes, Aparna. Um, I think that you're going to be okay. See, and, and I like that you said that worrying about it is important. Yeah. Because worrying about it means when you worry about something, you should do something about it. Don't just worry about it and sit there in the worry forever. Okay, um, here are uh, a couple of points. Uh, a, I am fat. That has health implications. That is always something that I need to manage. You're just talking about the amount of walking that's done in New York? No, I'm just saying, um, but uh, fat people are half as likely to commit suicide as the rest of the population. Wait, wait, half as likely? Half as likely. Because cake. Because you're so jolly? Because cake. <laughs> um Okay, it's because not, cake. It's not necessarily because jolly. It's because we managing our shit. Like, like, <laughs> like, because we have an answer to, ugh, should I exist? Um, and so I did. <laughs> when I went there, one of my things was, in New York, I'm going to fall in love with Jamaican food. Because, like, that is a thing to be excited about in New York. In New York, I'm going to look at tulips as much as I can during the month of May. I'm going to go to parks. You're going to have seasons, guy. I'm going to have seasons. I'm going to drink coffee and look at the stupid Ansonia Hotel. Because here's the thing. Uh, just like we were talking about cherry season, yeah, that's going to be sky in New York. Yeah. It's going to be like, oh, you can't have cherries all the time. It's going to be gray. Then suddenly it's sunny. Like, what? Fucking, let's go to Central Park and sit out outside. In Minnesota... In Minnesota, it was hilarious. So I moved there, and in, like, February, I was like, I want a peach. And I had never been in a situation, because my hometown, we farm nuts, and we farm prunes and peaches. So I had never been in a situation where a peach wasn't an option. Hmm. And, because also, California supermarkets... You never hear about those Minnesota peaches. (laughs) California supermarkets generally have this stuff, twenty because we always have Chilean produce, because we're used to spending money on stuff like that. Right. But in Minnesota... I went to my little supermarket, and it was just juice oranges and root vegetables. And I was like, where are they? What's going on? And everybody was like, oh, they're going to show up for around six weeks in August. And you know what? I think that's, that's part of it. That's part of the, the, the capitalism thing is go, go west, young man. Yeah. Go where there is jobs. Go where the biggest opportunities happen. So yes. everyone in the country switched places multiple times. Right. Everyone came out of their different seasons and their different foods and their different stuff. And suddenly everyone's like, wait a minute. I'm in Minnesota. Where are the peaches? And enough people said that. They were like, we got to have peaches in Minnesota. Right. All the damn time. 
And, you know, those end up being terrible peaches. Those end up being those tomatoes that don't taste. But after a generation or two, people forget that peaches are supposed to taste good. Yes. They're just like, oh, that, that looks like a peach, therefore it is. Yes. Tastes like shit, but that's what peaches are supposed to taste like. I do a little bit worry about being in New York just from the sense of being disconnected from... Uh, I am used to having things grow around me in, in Los Angeles, probably the least so, but having a real sense of like the, the cycle of the year and things being organic and alive. And I guess there are trees and stuff there, but um, there's trees, but like, I, I don't, that's what central parks for. I just don't know. Also, I'm, I'm scared of those children who grow up in Manhattan and um, aren't people. I'm going to say, ah, uh, fuck them. You've met some, I've met some here. They're fine. And they, they, like, they seem nice. They seem nice the, enough. The ones that are fine are the ones that are going to be drawn to you. Yes. And the ones that aren't, you can, you can my permission to punch them in the face. Um, but it, like, it is a place that knows how to have a good time. And that's, you know, that's something that matters to me is that like having a good time. I like living three blocks from all of the the bars in West Hollywood. Fucking everything. Because it's like, it's lovely. Because even But every neighborhood in New York is like that, though. Yeah. That's the thing. The New York is the only place that, and that's what I was uh, afraid about when I adjusting to Los Angeles. And I quickly learned the first place that I lived. Where do you in, live now? I live in Los Feliz. Okay. And I lived there because it's a walkable neighborhood. Yes. Because there's a lot of options. Yes. I lived, the first place I lived, I, I stayed with my friend Ariana who had an apartment on Sierra Bonita, literally uh-huh. right down the street from Meltdown, between yeah. Sunset and Fountain. Yeah. And so I quickly discovered when I'm hungry at 11 p.m., there's not like a sh- lot of stuff around me. Right. Like in New York, I had every f- – do I want Ethiopian? Yeah, I can get it uh-huh. to, to 1 o'clock in the morning. Indian, Thai, Chinese, four different regions of China yeah. at that. So it was like – and that's just in a two-block radius. So here – Living over there by the meltdown, I was like, well, I guess I'm walking to that scary-ass 7-Eleven on Sunset. It's too dark outside. I'm never going to do this again, for I like my throat to be in one piece. Oh, it's luck. It's got a lot of charm. It's Sure. I'm just saying in New York, you'll get used to that manic energy. Yes. You'll get used to the, the amount of options, and sometimes it feels like overload. I, I think I am just gun-shy about moving because it has in past been hard because it, it has been new things and I don't necessarily give enough respect to what I've learned about what it takes just to like manage myself and survive. But also I do tend to be a boy about making decisions for logical reasons. Like I'll just be like, you know, all right, people at Chelsea lately won't negotiate with me on this. There's no, I'm, I'm going to leave this. And then um, you know, three months later, I'm like a ball of sadness and regret, and I'm like, and like, uh, you know, minister- wait, I'm sorry, what were you like? Mm-hmm. Okay, I just want to make sure I heard it. You know, uh, like I was just like, all right, well, this isn't working out well in law school. Um, I need to start solving my problems. Why don't I just tell my parents I'm gay? And then six months later, I'm. You know, because some boy doesn't like me and okay. my mom won't talk to me. Mm, but I've learned things. You've I've, learned a lot. I've learned that when it gets terrible, I can take drugs that will make that well, manageable. You, you will make and, it manageable. And if I'm not necessarily at a at a drug level, 
I always know that pretty flowers pretty help. flowers pretty flowers help pretty flowers flowers are the stupidest thing to spend money on you buy something like and that's one of the things about comics is that we love writing jokes about flowers are the stupidest thing to spend money on right and we'll tell that self-righteous fucking joke right right and make right everybody think including ourselves that flowers are something stupid to spend flowers on or to spend money on and then you like and then you forget how lovely flowers are jim gaffigan um he was at UCB East and doing a show, and he did a joke about how we should never spend money on uh, research for anything but cancer because it kills the most people. We should only spend money on cancer. It's a very good joke. It is a very good joke. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I also, we should spend money on making people hotter. Like, we should <laughs> spend money figuring out science that will make people hotter because that's awesome. Because, like, being hot and getting to be around people who are hot is good. And you pretending that it's not good is fucking stupid. And the more you pretend that, the more you're going to become obsessed with hotness and not be able to respect it for what it is. I mean, getting cancer can only be uh, balanced out by that sweet-ass six-pack. Uh, death will come for all of us. <laughs> death like, will come for all of us. Um, isn't it beautiful that you, know, you, you might get six-pack abs? Or if not, I will never have six-pack uh, six abs, but I have gotten to jizz on them, sir. And that... <laughs> Is a beautiful thing, and I would give that up for nothing. Amen? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> We've got to have stuff to live for. That's the prettiest flower of all. We, it's, like, if you if you put it outside of what you can have, it becomes the prettiest flower. But if you let yourself enjoy it, it's just one of the many fl- pretty flowers. Somebody said this, and this is th- these two things. Somebody told me there's this book they call. Uh, I think it was called Three Simple Steps. Uh huh. And she said she stumbled upon an interview with a guy that wrote it. I think his name is Trevor Blake or oh. something like that. And sounds made up. He's probably Jewish and trying to pretend he's not Jewish. Maybe but, who but knows? Keep going. Who knows? So basically, basically, one of the points that he said in this interview was, in order to have change, to institute change. You have to think more about what it is you are for mm-hmm. as opposed to what it is you are against. Because whichever one you spend the most time thinking about is where your energy goes. Yeah. So if you think about, I don't like this, I don't want that, I don't want that, then you're going to be a negative person. Right. But if you think about the things that you're going to introduce to your life, p- pretty flowers, peaches, New York City. Yeah. Then suddenly it starts to become like, oh, these are great opportunities. It was like you were talking about in the pitches. Which is kind of like, oh, it could be like this. Yeah. Here's all the ways that this can work. I remember talking to Kanane about, he was talking about his first album, The mm-hmm. Death of the Party. And he said the whole album was, this was the challenge he'd given to himself. And I, I, I don't know how close he's come to it yet. Is he felt the entire album was him complaining about everything. Uh-huh. He's like, ah, he's like, the whole album is just me cranky, cranky, crank, crank. I don't like this. I don't like that. Ah, just cranky, crank. And he's like, I'm trying to explore the things that bring me joy. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm trying to explain, well, what about talking about I love this, I like this, right? So, and I was like, that's exactly 
the thing I told myself when I started doing stand up. Yeah. Because I had noticed the language of don't you hate it when? Right. And I'm like, is everybody going to do don't you hate it? Yeah. Because I don't think that I hate every I hate enough stuff. Like I, I hate things. Yes. Mainly me. But <laughs> but what about I love it when? There came a moment when I realized I was getting mad at myself for getting mad at myself too much. Emotions and, about your emotions. Yes. And it, it was just like, hey, maybe not being disappointed in yourself is like a fun option. Um, and you could do that. And like, it's weird because like the good emotions do pull you towards something. And the things you love to talk about are the best things to write jokes about because you'll be so in the middle of them. Um, but you also need, I also do want you to be dangerous. Um, uh, Karen Kilgariff, um, we were talking about something and she said, I kind of don't want to watch anyone who isn't a little bit angry on stage. And I loved that. Like, I, I, I love that a lot. I love that sentiment because it's kind of where I come from, but I do spend too much time yelling on stage. I do spend too much time being in the middle of, of anger and not just remembering that I am a human being like the people in front of me. But you can be angry about that. See, the angry in itself is different than what it is that you're angry about. Right. And, but, and I, think, I think you just, you do need to be doing, you need to be being transgressive. You need to be saying, you need to be questioning the world around you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you can also be doing that from a place, like it, it should be good and bad. I don't believe in the approach to the force that led to the downfall of the Republic. I think that <laughs> the dark side, well, when you have this construction of the light side and the dark side, it's stupid. I've, I've always said my comedy comes from the dark side. Like my comedy comes from being in touch with my rage and my like anger and fear and being able to sort of embrace those things and like say what I want to say. But also, you need to have, like, the, the goodness and the, the love and all of that. I mean, trying to be all, like, you know, just the light side is stupid. You need to have both of them in a disciplined balance. It's a balance, and I think that that, I, I think ultimately that is the point yeah. of the force. Yes. Is that you have to be in touch with those things for them not to run you. Yes. Right? Right. They're the weeds in the garden of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I do worry about only fighting the battles of when I was 15 years old. Like, mm. I do, um, you know, uh, <laughs> two Halloweens ago, a, two boys, ridiculously hot boys wearing Speedos, like, recognized me and got excited. And they're swimmers for USC, and they're gay, and I'm friends with them now. And it's like, is this a friendship you should have? Like, your friend, like, you're never going to have sex with them. You're friends with them. They're children. Like, you're at fundamentally different points. And, like, you enjoy them, but they're not necessarily, like, you know, like, the smart, amazing people who you should be friends with. Uh, that's mean. But, like, the point is, is, like, am I too old to, to be friends with these guys? Am I just... But, like, I can't say no, because 15-year-old me would be, like, USC swimmers who are gay, who, like, openly, like, put things in their butts by choice. No, you keep those around. <laughs> you, 
You never they're, know how they're, drunk somebody They're pretty might flowers. Be. They're pretty flowers. And like, but I, I worry that I am too much in that and like not letting myself grow up. That's one thing though, guy. Yeah. That's not, that's again, it's not one way. Yeah. It's, I, it's, it's balance. And I think I do need to be, God, periodically I've had people say, oh God. Fucking therapist. Uh oh. When um, this is right after I came out. Right after I came out, I'm in Minnesota. She's the student provided therapist, and I said something about boys, and she said, "Don't you think that's a little immature?" And I, like, wanted to breathe fire at her about yes. What, what did you say about boys? Uh, I said something about something sexual, or I was like, it was just like yes, it was something very naive or about how. Uh, there was this boy and we were supposed to practice kissing together and then he didn't want to. And she was like, isn't that terribly immature? And I was like, yes, it is. Because I did not get to do these things when I was supposed to do them. Did you say that? Uh, no, I didn't at the time. <laughs> um, I said something along those lines, but... It was more like, oh! Yes, and okay. it, it, it was just, uh, like, it made me so angry. Mm. And it does bother me when everyone has this attitude of, like... <laughs> with homosexuality you're always supposed to be over it and be telling everyone how normal you are and how fine you are and you're just like we're just like everybody else we spent so long having to argue we're just like everybody else that there hasn't really been respect for the extent to which like we had a different experience and we need to tell you guys how that experience was different so that when you have children who are gay or maybe gay you can set up a world where they can maybe have these experiences a little bit more when they're supposed to. Well, I think, and that's, that's where I relate the civil rights struggle of gay people to yeah. the civil rights struggle of black people, because both in a way are defined by having to make someone who doesn't have that as their experience, understand yes. it. Right. And it's like, they're completely different. Yeah. But it's just like, no, white people, we're like you, though. Yes. And they gave you people like, no, straight people, we're like you, though. Yeah. It's like, no, well, you're not. And that's sort of the point. And can't we all be okay with that? Right. I, you are your, your people. But that's the thing. We have to convince people that have, it, it's supposed to be one way. Yeah. The people who are the one wayers right. that like, no, there's another way. And I'm doing it. But it, it, is, it is so interesting because at the one time, like at the same time you're supposed to be like, oh, no, we can do it your way. We can do your – do you hear – like I can, I, I can do a great job of talking the way that you do and, uh, you know, black people like speaking nice standard American English and, and – stand, uh, stand, I can't stand him. Yes. Uh, black people, quote, singing in the rain all the time. <laughs> Continue what you were saying. Oh, but then also – as your joke so beautifully points out, getting to the point where people can realize a human being can be really, really smart, but talk the way his mom did because that's the way her mom did because that's the way her mom did. Um, and like our, our, there is there is stuff that affects us about this. There are ways that social interactions make different kinds of sense to us. Um, and that makes being a 13-year-old weird. Like it's never not going to be unusual to be gay. In the way that like it's never not gonna there are there are rare places where it is not unusual to be black in America. There are rare places where it's not unusual to be Jewish in America. But we have systems for sort of like handling these things. But like 
we still live in the world where the little black children do not want to play with the little black dolls. Um, and the, it is it's the imagery that's fed to us. Yes. And it's the same for gay children. And we don't know which ones are gay. Like we don't know which ones are gay and we're kind of still not allowed to acknowledge that there is something inside of that. There's a little ticking time bomb. That's I, hurt, I think the thing though, is if, if you want to play with dolls and that's, Nope. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, here I had an awesome moment. Um, were we recording or not recording when we were talking about me running into Mary Mac at, uh, at Nerd Mouths? No, we weren't. Okay. Um, so I ran into Mary Mac and she, like we had only met. Speaking of Minnesota. We had only met once and I sort of reintroduced myself and she was like making a, a production of saying, apologizing for not remembering me. And I was like, no, we only barely met once. But it was competitive erotic fan fiction. And I got uh, Malibu Barbie as the suggestion. Holy crap. And it was during the course of writing it, I realized how much how much intimacy I remembered playing with Barbies with. And like that like went into everything I was writing, like what it's like to pull her dress off or whatever. Um, because getting it over the hips is always very hard. Um, and then um, it was lovely. And there were a good number of, of girls in the audience who appreciated it. And then the next day, I got a tweet from Mary saying, I was so glad that you got my suggestion of uh, Malibu Barbie. Oh, look at that. And Serendipity. It was, it, was a, it was a lovely moment. Um, but, you know, we right now, the only culture we have for, like, we, it's, it's a little boy has to play with girls' toys or a girl has to play with, with boys' toys. And, and we don't necessarily have culture for kids who might be grow up to be in in same sex relationships so like there's there's this kid who has who does youtube videos and he's amazing but it's like a 12 year old boy who's pretending to be um a, a jaded like 30 year old drag queen of a man and it's he's awesome like you youtube is amazing we we like the way that the printing press changed politics and religion the way that protestantism and democracy came out of the printing press because you couldn't control ideas anymore the internet is kind of the same thing for homosexuality because you you can't stop people from exploring like i as soon as i got the internet that was there was only a matter of time before i came out and now you have these little 13 year olds who are producing um shot for shot remakes of beyonce videos or just talking shit at bitches. And like, <laughs> it's amazing. The talking shit at bitches is an art form that has been, uh, that's kind of been under the radar for a long time. Uh, this, this kid, his name is Lohanthony. Um, and I, I, like Retta saw one of his videos and like immediately posted it and was like, this kid is amazing. But he's 12 years old and we, we should have some kind of, we should have parents who are ready to take that kid and help guide him towards more productive and age-appropriate things for him to be doing. And that's the thing. Our, our, they calling mean, out all the basic bitches. Our system is based upon a heterosexual white patriarchal idea mm -hmm. from Europe. Yeah. And uh, until we're done with it, we're, just, we're oppressed by it. The, the, the thing is, the reason it doesn't work, obviously, anymore is because there's not only them. Yeah. Anymore. There's, and that's the whole thing that's happened with the whole political system right now. It's just kind of like, no, we want things to be the way it's been. Our forefathers had slaves. 
I want a migrant worker, basically. Um, okay, I'm joking now. And you're looking at me like, what, what's the point that you're making? I'm just saying that like they're trying to hold on to this idea because – and so much is fed into it. But there's the that, way that we're sold shit is fed into it. And, and there's the, the weirdness. What was that? I don't know. I think that was one of your things making oh, a noise. Oh, is that my phone? Holy crap. Okay. Yep. Sorry. It That's was okay. Freaking but there's the weird- Siri was all up in my pocket talking shit at bitches. But there's the weirdness of like the same system that oppresses us is also so much of the beautiful and wonderful things that we have gotten or enjoyed. All of all of the like ninety percent of the pretty words you love written down no. were written by a white dude in English. And I, absolutely. I'm just that saying feels weird. it's not one way. Right. Again, it, everyone wants it to be this way, but it's the other way. Have you ever read uh, any Salman Rushdie? No. There's something very awesome about the way he very aggressively But I do love grilled Salmon. <laughs> Uh, Salman Rushdie goes so aggressively at the English language and European literary traditions of saying, all of these things that you forced us to learn during colonialism are mine now, and I'm going to do whatever I want with them. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. Like, he plays around so hard with it. Like, here's a guy, he is one of the writers I love most because he is, like, frivolous and playful and, like, talking shit at stuff left and right, but also dealing with, like, the biggest and most complex stuff. And I hate this sense of, like, you are either self-righteous and full of yourself and serious, or you are, you are not and you are, you are pointless. One time, early on in stand-up, I got up and I did a set in a rowdy bar, and I was loud, and I was aggressive, and I got the people pointing in the right direction, and I had a good set. And as I was sitting down, this guy who, like, outranked me by a couple of years said, real subtle. And then he got up, and he did stupid fucking self-congratulatory jokes where he, like, name-dropped he name dropped a writer of haiku, and it was, like, the writer of haiku that anyone knows. And I was just like, like fuck you, Dick bag for not realizing that I can be interesting while also talking about Beyonce. That like that like your your decision about what is important and, in, and not important mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. not the only answer. Stop being a snob. Stop being a snob. And I do think that like black people, women, and gays, it is so common to define our culture as frivolous and unimportant that it is oh black people are just good at basketball and rap music um that women like rom-coms and rom-coms are stupid and like women like i i actually think that this is they don't like to suck dick but you know who does (laughs) the gays yes um but uh, like i do have there's a an issue with feminism has for so long just been about allowing women to go into men's pursuits and interests. And we haven't really done much to rehabilitate the stuff that we consider girls' interests. We still think it's very okay to make fun of anything that 12-year-old girls like. Mm -hmm. Like, these things are ridiculous and stupid. Carly Rae Jepsen is stupid. Um, And I do look forward to romantic comedies being like short ribs. Like a thing that were once the marginalized culture of a marginalized people that everyone is able to realize, oh no, this is really good. Hmm, okay. Um, 
and and like embrace a little bit more. Yeah, and I I see that. I I do. I feel like I definitely horror is probably my least favorite genre. Yes, but when something is interesting, I'll watch it. Right. I feel like that's the way. I I feel like I stumble on rom coms all the time. But. Uh, but there's just like so many. There's too many. There's so many that, of course, not all of them are good. A lot of them are shitty. Uh, but sometimes you can learn a lot from that. Horror movies are so interestingly related to, like, the black community, and over the past twenty years have become why because we, like, it, it's. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, if black people are in a movie theater watching a horror movie, it's just quiet. <laughs> so I don't know where you're going at. Oh, um, um, we're all just locked in the terror and the tenseness. Of the moment. Well, it, there was something interesting in the 90s when people figured out, like, oh. Tension, that's the word they meant to say. Black people like going to horror movies, and then you started getting horror movies that featured significant black characters or were black produced, and it was like, oh, this is exciting. Uh, two points. A, I maintain every romantic comedy is a horror movie about something that could actually happen. Like, hey, yo. Um, at, at G4, everybody like had a script that they were working on. And everybody else had a zombie. Everyone had a zombie script. And then I was always writing a romantic comedy about a plucky girl. Um, and it's, I was like talking about this to my, my friend Ryan and sort of like, why do they write real stuff, and, like stuff that's good and gripping and, and I don't? And he's like, because the scariest thing they can imagine is a zombie like shoving its hand through a wall. The scariest thing you can imagine is dying alone. And like dying alone could happen. Like, there is something, you want to know what's terrifying? Meg Ryan driving from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., hearing a voice on the radio and understanding that she may love that man more than she loves the man who just proposed to her. That's fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, and, okay, all uh, right. And I respect that. Uh, the other thing which is related is when Nora Ephron died, I went on... Um, I went to Roger Ebert's website and I was like, I'm going to read both the original reviews of When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. And okay. then I'm going to read the great movies reviews because um, like, I just want to like wallow in what Nora is. And then I realized that there were no great movies reviews because Roger Ebert goes back and like great movies, he re-reviews them. And I was stunned that there wasn't one for either of those. So then I went through looking for any romantic comedy and I could find two Woody Allen movies and two romantic comedies from the thirties but nothing else. And this is the genre I like best, which I consider to be the smartest of comedy genres. Like it's the, like comedies of human relationships are the smartest, but the, it is also, they're the hardest to do. Yes. They're very hard to do. But, but when they're good, they're fucking they're so the best. good. They're the best, but they're for girls. And I, it led me into this thing of why do gay guys like stuff that's for girls. And a lot of friends had a lot of theories. And then I was just, my my grand decision was, like, women are human beings and I don't have a good reason to hate them. Like, the, our definition of these things as frivolous is us wanting to say women don't really matter. And if you don't start from a place of women don't really matter because you don't give a shit about their genitals. Like, women's genitals are the least interesting thing about them to me, which is lovely. I mean, it, it opens up, you know, uh, just... A, all a sorts whole, of doors. All sorts of doors. Uh, but no flaps. Um, hey. To the extent that I understand how any of that Professional works. Professional writer Guy Branham. That was me attempting <laughs> to make a joke about something I don't understand. <laughs> oh, good God. Um, but, yeah, I, you know. The, 
Well, and and the reason that I sometimes get interested in rom-coms is because that is what people think. How like do you it's mean? I, because I I believe in secular religions. Mm-hmm. Meaning that love is its own god. Love mm-hmm. is a god. Yeah. And we're all scrambling to figure out what the Bible is of love. And we all have our own cultural construction. We all have these of, different constructions. Of what love is. And it's better that there's, like, moving towards a notion of a Bible is useful because this shared hallucination of what love is makes it easier to get to the same place. Indeed. So with a rom-com, it is a reflection of what people think. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, it lets me know, like, because everybody is wrapped up in love and relationships all the time, like people, regardless of how much you do or don't like zombies, there's still the girl down the street that it's hard for you to talk to. Right. You know, and you might just be like, hi, zombies. I like zombies. And you're like, well, that sucked. Right. So with a, in a rom-com, it shows me what uh, are the biggest concerns in America right now in terms of relationships. Uh, Huey Lewis in the news no one would say that they are amazing songwriters. No one would say that they are great artists. But I Want a New Drug is a really interesting song <laughs> that so beautifully relates that feeling of, like, there, there's something horrifying. Like, it's, it's the most elusive of drugs, of when you meet the right person, it is a gross intoxication. And you can't, like... And some of you are like, is that the Ghostbusters? They're similar sounding. I can't. There was a lawsuit. I can't. Oh, was there? Yeah, there was, I think. I can't just go score some new 27-year-old RISD-trained photographer who will kind of be a dick to me. There was only one of those, and now he has gone through my fingers, and I have only this stupid photo to remind me of him. That's him? No, that's not him. That's Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius' son. They went to RISD together. Okay, I met Kathleen Sebelius. He took this photograph. Why did you meet Catherine Sebelius? Kathleen or Catherine? Kathleen. She said Kathy. That's why I was just like, Uh, I'm Kathy, is what she said. How did I meet her? Oh, you know why I met her? Uh, Because she was on the Colbert Report. Uh And I used to do this show called Shoot the Messenger with Liz Winstead back in New York. Oh, yeah. And so... Someone brought her to it to uh-huh. walk to see the show, and that's how I met her. And I was like, "Oh, okay, I know who you are." <laughs> Hello, um, about Liz Winstead. Yeah, do you get terrified of meeting people who are your heroes? It depends. It depends on the people. Um, I will. Wh- yeah, but I feel like in Los Angeles, it's happened more so than it does in New York. Mm-hmm. That I have met people who are my heroes. Yeah, that also have seen me or eventually see me and then say nice things. Right. And then, uh, and then I also get to hear their opinions on things of what's going on in their career. And I go like, Oh, the bullshit never stops. Right. So, and it's sort of encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten lucky that none of them have been a dick to me yeah. yet. Um, you know, but like meeting people like Liz or like, uh, Bamford or like Cho, yeah. Um, or you know, Posein, uh, Dana Gould, you know, Marin. That like, like, oh, you guys are people. Uh, Margaret Cho, at the one time I walked into the lab and Margaret Cho just said, "Hi, guy." 
and it was this ridiculous moment of me being like she just knows my name like she, i didn't i didn't realize that she just knows my name and then uh again pushing back to frivolity when i was like a year and a half into stand up maybe 2 years uh robin williams will come to one or two open mics in san francisco every year and he'll like stand at the back and he's very good at, like he doesn't roll in and destroy the room and then like let everybody else go up behind him after he's done an hour and everything like that. He waits until the very end and then he goes up and he does his time. Um, you know, he does like 45 minutes. Because he's respectful. Um, yes. And, and then he goes. But when he went up, he said like lovely, lovely things about me and Jasper Red. And I... Look, nothing came of that. Nothing happened of that. It was just a little thing that happened. It was just like it was a, a flower that I had in front of me. But like in the intervening 10 years of being a stand-up, there have been many times when things were going very poorly. And I always got to remember that like when Robin Williams was presented with, like when Robin Williams was presented with many people from San Francisco, like he told me how great I was. Uh, and just the other day he was at... Um, Fan fiction. He was a, a big money. He did. Oh, he came to big money. Okay, he came to big money, and um, he came up and he said something nice, and like I tried to tell him the sort of like oh, in, you know, San Francisco, and and like that has meant a lot to me, and you know, he's Robin Williams. He's like in his space, that kind of thing. I don't think he really like got it, but like I always get that. Like I I, I always I will always have that moment and you can toss it aside as oh that doesn't mean anything he was just saying that it's so easy to discard these things and not treasure them right but like why not why the fuck not? treasure them and it, and it always is interesting because it's like two heroes that i've yet to meet are steve martin and uh, robert townsend uh-huh. and there was a time in new york where i was at this theater and i walked out of the space and Steve Martin was in the lobby at a different show in the same theater. It was like a basement and a ground, lo- a ground floor space. And he was like at this other show and he was like shaking hands, being incredibly personable. I literally just read his book yes. and been like, okay, if I see Steve Martin, just don't fucking walk up to him. He's not into it. Yeah. And then he was out there like shaking hands and saying hello to people. I'm like, what the fuck? Steve Martin is here. I don't know what the hell's happening. But recently, so uh, Rick Overton, Mm-hmm. I was in a show in New York that he was on, mm-hmm. and then he was very, very nice yeah. and said a couple things that probably the biggest thing that he said that I'm taking, that I took, was what does your comedy reveal about your morality? Oh, that's interesting. He's like, you're very funny. Uh-huh. He's like, you obviously know how to write a joke. He's like, but I don't know who you are from all your material. You know, he's like, so it's like, always think about like, what is it that you're saying about your morality, your moral center mm-hmm. in your comedy? Because you don't, you don't have to specifically talk about politics. Yeah. It's like, but who you are should come out. Yeah. And I was like, mm, okay, yeah, definitely. Because, and it's funny too, because literally I did that joke. It was a little piece of a standup that uh, was a beautifully constructed piece of standup. Mm-hmm. And that's why I liked it. Right. Because of how it moved. I, I wasn't saying anything that I really believed in as much as I had written this bit that was perfect. 
So I, I, I was doing it because I wanted to know that I could do it. Yeah. This piece of stand-up goes from this place to that place. People are applauding at the end and, every sing- and laughing in every single place I want them to laugh. Craftsmanship is important. That's what it is. I was all into the craftsmanship of that bit. So it was my closer at the time yeah. because it was the most beautifully crafted thing that I had. Yeah. So, and then he was saying, like, everything else you did, I felt like I got your morality. That closer, though. And he was like, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Then I just met Emo Phillips at The Tomorrow Show. Uh-huh. He co-hosted with Ron. Yeah. And he called me the next day. And I'd met him once before, but he would never saw my That's act. crazy. So the next day he called me and said a lot of nice things. Uh-huh. And then he was talking about, um, he said two things. He said, there was an intelligence to your act. Yeah. He's like, which is always good. Yeah. He's like, because even if people aren't laughing, they're at least going, well, I'm learning something. Right. This is still better than reading. Yeah. And then the other thing was um, funny is the best publicity. That's what uh-huh. he said. He's like, if you're funny, people will tell each other yeah. about you. That's a lovely way of of looking at it. Yeah. Having that nexus between because you, you want the craftsmanship because you know it's good and you know it's repeatable. But then you you do also and you want the smart. But I also think there's something to just like you being you and you doing what you want to do is charming it makes it feel real and thus immediate that's one of the things that we really have in, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in what we're doing um and also like i i do feel that that like the energy you're talking about about talking about things that you love like comes through and is communicated to people like it's you you can get the energy that you need on stage if you are in the middle of something that just like excites you um, and you know what? I had a recent revelation that I shared with uh, Ryan Singer uh-huh. and Chris Fairbanks. Yeah. And I thought it was more relevant to Fairbanks because because Fairbanks will ramble. Yeah. And he's literally one of my favorite people to watch uh-huh. do stand up. And especially because he gets so goddamn angry and frustrated. Right. But all this beautiful, he just says all this incredible, beautiful shit. And then he gets off just like, ah, it's all over the place, blah, blah, blah. And we did some show where it was like kind of crappy. And I was like, you have to record yourself. Record yourself and I'll tell you why. Because he was shitting. He was yeah. just like, ah, oh, these fucking UCLA douches are walking up and down this fucking stairs. Yes. And then he recorded himself. And I, I found Were out. Were you at Brewing Ups and Laughs? Hmm? Were you at? Uh... That shit. Okay, yeah. Ben Bazuna's show. Yeah. So, and I said this to Ryan Singer recently too, which was. I have been recording myself incessantly lately. Mm-hmm. It's like all of my sets. Yes. The most valuable sets are the low, most low-stake shows uh-huh. where I'm going to ramble, mm-hmm. where I'm going to just keep talking. And I record myself. Now, when I was not recording myself, I would do that and then just beat myself up about being inconsistent, inconsistent mm-hmm. which is different than inconsistent because it's con. Right. Uh, being inconsistent and unfocused and not knowing what the fuck I'm doing and not thinking through my bits – and I should have been, it should have been this, this, and this. And I just fucking did bullshit. And I'd be in that brain until I had a good set. Yeah. But now that I record it, two things happen. Number one, it's never as bad as I remember it being. Uh-huh. And number two, I, my brain is presenting to me the shit I need to be talking about. Yeah. I start hearing, oh, it's, it's clay. And there's the little pieces in there that are stuck in the, whatever, the noodles or whatever. It's. 
things are happening, but because I haven't recorded them, I never, ha- I don't you know. You haven't noticed them, yeah. So when I listen to the recording now, I'm like, oh, there's like four things in there that can become something else. I can cherry pick those and work on them, start to craft them. I, I've only done it for two sets, but I'm trying to let myself eventually ramble more. Like, you learn that it is a bad habit when you are open micing, when people don't know things, but now you know things. And for me, it's just trying to open up who I am on stage and absolutely to like not be that gigantic gay guy who's yelling like because I can be that guy and that's fun. But I also need to get a bit more comfortable with being vulnerable mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like open and letting people see who I am and not trying like not treating myself like I'm a mythological creature but instead being a human being like they are. I've never, uh, I've never saw your set and thought that big gay guy is yelling. I've never thought that just so you know, well, the goal should always (laughs) be bleeding humanity. Um, but you know, they're like, you just, you, you have to explore, you have to explore how you do it. And you also can't, um, I think I probably don't do hours as much as you do, um, but you cannot have huge energy for an hour. You do need to figure out the ways of being deeply engaging while being more conversational. And I was talking to, uh, you know, Kieran Deal? Uh, yes. At all? Um, I was talking to her about colleges, uh-huh. the concept of doing colleges. Yeah. And just, I did them for three years, and it taught me how to build an hour. Yeah. Because it's it's different to build an hour by doing a bunch of 10-minute sets right. and then yes. sticking them together yes. than it is to be like, I'm going to talk for 45 minutes to 60 minutes, and that in itself is the clay. Yeah. And it's now i got to move things around within that structure. It, like, par- part of it just comes from confidence. I mostly, and the only times I, I do hours are at colleges, and I always, it's not like doing a week at a club where you, like, do, can sort of like do the same do the same thing four four to five times in in like a row and have that um you're sort of like going to one place with these children and and doing your hour and every time I go to it I'm so fucking terrified I'm so fucking terrified and I spend a bunch of time being like this and this and this and this and then just going out there and trusting I'll be fine and things will float into my head <laughs> and like you've like you've got bunches of bits Branham um I do and, and like they'll they'll be there for you and it's made me get a little bit better at telling stories i'm not good at telling stories um and well that's the other thing that an hour reveals to me is the tricks uh-huh like if i have two bits in which the movement of them is similar yeah just the structuring of them like it's like well i start here and i go to this place and it looks on paper, if I were to put the pieces next to each other, those two bits are identical. Yes. So even though I'm saying different shit, but the flow of them is the same. You can have structurally similar jokes. No, it's it's so true. Or I can write, I'll have a new bit and I'll be so excited about it. And then I'll realize, oh God, I'm kind of just saying the same thing that I say in this, this, this other, other bit. bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's stupid and pointless and it is weird to realize the stuff that your brain is obsessed with. But then it's interesting to... to be like, okay, well, I'm going to take a different tactic on that bit now. Uh-huh. This bit flows like that. That bit flows exactly the same. So I'm going to change both of them. 
Yeah. Or I just can't do both. Like those, I can't do those side by side because they're similar themes unless I turn them into one thing. Maybe they're not supposed to be two bits. Yeah. Maybe they're supposed to be one bit. That's very interesting. It is also weird to see the way that people grow as joke writers if, if you have worked in a jokey, jokey writing environment. Right, or right. if you have just been a stand-up because, like, Louis Katz spends so much more time on every joke than I do, and he creates these, like, very, very beautifully crafted jokes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I can turn out a decent one-liner on any subject, but so frequently I'm just going to my bag of jokes, or my bag of tricks about how a joke works, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and they're not they're not something that's that's still going to be ready to take on the road, you know. Well, you know, and I realize that that's a bad, that's not the best standard. I remember writing a packet and I was writing these jokes for it Uh and I was holding them to the standard of would I do this on stage? Right. But I realized, of course, that's irrelevant. Yes. Because I'm not going to be performing them. Right. Jimmy Fallon's going to be performing them or Jimmy Kimmel's going to be, someone named Jimmy is (laughs) going to be performing these jokes, not me. So I have to write it in their voice, in their style, or write something that is still a joke that they will take and turn into something that's, a little, that's more them. It's, it's so hilarious that we, get, we pat ourselves on the back to such an extent about how far we've come as a society. But in late night, pretty much everyone is still named Jimmy. <laughs> Any closing thoughts? Um, it's always lovely to have time with you. Um, I, I appreciate it. And... Um, you know, uh, you you are one of the things that I, I get out of living a stupid life, and I enjoy that. Oh, guy, we're gonna hug so hard right now. Aww. Well, I think that guy and I just killed you, softy, softy. We just killed you, softy, with our words. That no, we didn't kill you softly. You had a penis that wasn't erect enough, and we just killed it. We killed it with Jamaican accent. We just killed you softy. That's what we did. Or you had a a frozen yogurt that you got from a a traveling frozen yogurt van that just knocked that shit out of your hand with ideas. That's how strong our ideas were. It was like a back of a hand to the delicious dessert that you had in your hands. Sorry to kill you softy. I am cracking myself up. I must be an egg with a death wish. All right. What? Guys, um, that was the podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, Don't forget to check out the All Things Comedy Network. Check out all these different great podcasts. Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast. The Bone Zone. Um, Soccer Comics. Minivan Men. Dork Forest. Jake This with Jake Johansson. Guys, the champs. The champs and the newest member of the All Things Network, All Things Comedy, All Things Comedy Podcast Network. That's the whole correct, whole correct, correct title. I cannot talk today. The newest member of the All Things Comedy Network is uh, Comedy Film Nerds with Chris Mancini and Graham Elwood. So check all those things out. Also, a personal plug to my friend. Phoebe Robinson, the Blaria podcast. She's a great New York comic that I love a lot. And she has a great podcast and a great blog called Blaria. That's Black Daria. Get it, guys? Come on, high-fiving you through the airwaves. All right. Next week. Podcast on time. Or will it be?
Wow, 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 wow,